Coming up on Tech Nation, the power of video on your smartphone. Not to entertain you, but rather to tell companies what they're doing right and wrong. Patricia Roller, the CEO of Vidlet, will tell us how it works. This is not your mother's focus group. Then on Tech Nation Health, the link between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease. And your brain cells? Each one appears to be a little bit different. Dr. Gerald Chun, head of neuroscience drug discovery at Sanford Burnham Prebis Medical Discovery Institute, explains all this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is five minutes. You gotta feel a little sorry for the Pope. I mean, for centuries, popes have been special, revered, blessed, and until recently, pretty much sequestered in Rome. Who knows if one snuck out for pasta in Chianti, as the paparazzi didn't exist until there were cameras and newspapers. And now, of course, digital photography and the internet. The Pope was far away, untouched and untouchable. Periodically, he would come out to his balcony, above the crowd gathered in St. Peter's Square. But it was not until recently that popes actually traveled to other countries, said Mass with tens of thousands in large athletic stadiums, and traveled over the Golden Gate Bridge and through the city in his Popemobile. Now that was exciting. And boy, he must have been in a hurry. The Popemobile was going at quite a clip down Geary Boulevard. Still, we saw the Pope all right. That is, if you didn't blink. Of course, that was then, and this is now. And the digital age has come to the Vatican. Popes are photographed by thousands, and the Church's significant written instructions to Catholics everywhere are translated into multiple languages and published on the Internet. But Pope Francis is not entirely happy with all this. You see, as Pope Francis is saying Mass, he looks out at the assemblage, and what does he see? He sees smartphones held up by disembodied arms, holding them up above the crowd, jockeying for an unimpaired view. A whole sea of them. And why does this bother him? Because he's performing a sacred rite. It's not a performance, it's a religious ceremony. He's saying Mass for and with the people assembled. It's intended that they worship together. But boy, it's hard when you finally got close enough to someone who you never thought you would see in your whole life. My mother didn't have a smartphone when Pope John Paul II came to San Francisco, but she did manage to touch his robe as his assemblage walked past her on their way up to the impromptu altar in Candlestick Park. I guess she couldn't help herself. Besides, no one in the 70,000 people in attendance seemed to notice their attention apparently fixed on the giant jumbotron. To tell you the truth, I think only a few will put their phones away. But there's a real lesson here. 
I used to take a lot of pictures on trips, but I found myself spending all my energy taking pictures and not taking in the experience. What do I feel? What do I notice? What does this remind me of? What have I suddenly remembered? What does this tell me about my life? The sheer ability of your mind to take you to other places on so many levels is enormous. But not if you're intensely engaged in taking pictures of everything. Even if you set deliberate boundaries, others know that you take good pictures and say, take that, or did you get that? or any number of other related activities. You don't want to be the photographer of your life. You want to be the liver of your life. Still, I can't get that image of the Jumbotron out of my mind. How soon thereafter, the 49ers took to the field. But images, both still and moving, are fleeting. And while it's great to return to them, authentic experience stays with you in a much more nuanced way. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, how using the video on our smartphones can provide valuable information to businesses everywhere. Patricia Roller, the CEO of Vidlet, joins me to talk about how they do it. Then on TechNation Health, the link between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's, and how that may give us insights into drug discovery. Dr. Gerald Chun from Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute talks about the mosaic of our brains. When it comes to business insights and strategies, which are possible from using the video capability of smartphones, one term stood out to me, ethnographic research. I asked Patricia Roller, the CEO of Vidlet, what is it? Ethnographic research, Moira, is um, the understanding of human behavior. So it's understanding how people use products, services, on a very, very intimate level. So it's um, compared to what people would call quantitative research, where you ask a lot of people the same questions. Ethnographic research is a lot more refined in asking few people very deep questions. Now, what does the ethno mean? Is it situational? It's situational. It's in their environment. It's um, in their country. It's... um, so I think it implies, funny you asked me that question, never thought about it, but uh, I think it implies that it's very personal. Now, in the old days, we used to have focus groups. Now, what were they great for and where are they limiting? So focus groups are still okay, um, but I think you bring people into an environment that's not natural to them. 
right? You would bring people into an environment like you bring me here today in your studio where I feel very awkward. Um, and you immediately wanted to redesign it. I thought that was great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think uh, the difference to what we want to do is go into people's homes, into hospitals, go to where they are compared to bringing them into an environment that you artificially create. I always think uh, Hewlett-Packard showed people these these color printers, which were going to be very cheap in the focus group. And they all said, oh, we don't want those. And of course, it saved Hewlett-Packard, essentially. Right. I mean, uh, people often, <clears throat> when you ask them questions in a controlled environment, they tell you what you want to hear because they want to please you. It's human nature. They think you're paying them. You haven't, you know, they have invited you. So let me tell you what you want to hear. What we are trying to do is more like let people tell us what they do in their own environment because it's more natural um, and a little bit more raw. Unedited, it's, it, you are who you are. People don't tell, take selfies of somebody else. <laughs> exactly. And I think initially the question was, will people be so honest about themselves? And I think what we are seeing is if you give them a couple of minutes – they are so used to talking about themselves now on a mobile phone. So you relax them a little bit. You ask them some very easy questions, and they become completely their own. They completely forget that you are there. And you're there sitting in their own environment. So that's that's comforting. Almost sometimes too comforting. So we are seeing things that... Um, will really surprise you. Like we did a study on people eating pizza. And we saw more men eating pizza without a shirt on than we ever wanted to see. <laughs> so, but I think that speaks to the fact that people are perfectly comfortable showing you their home, um, showing you what they do, um, much better than in a focus group where you invite them in and they look perfect for the day. Now, I have to admit that it, I didn't really grasp the fact that we all have, so many of us have, I should say, these smartphones capable of recording all kinds of information, certainly capable of recording video. So the greatest part of the population has an ability to record itself in ways we've actually never seen before. Very true. I mean, most companies today only look at their customers within a very narrow geographic reach, right? I mean, a lot of food companies are in the Midwest. When their customers are in China, are in the Philippines, and we now can get into their homes and talk to them and have them tell us what they like and don't like. So you can send them a product? We send them a product, um, we have them test the product right in front of us. They open the product. They experience the product. So it's the whole journey from receiving it, um, consuming it, discarding it. All of these things are very important. Like back to the pizza story, like companies often focus on making the perfect pizza, but equally important is the way you get the pizza. Like who's the person showing up on your door? What's the box like? All of those things are very, very important to your experience. 
And so we can now record that and show you how a consumer experiences a product front to end. So let's just roll back here and say we have Vidlet here. You can go out to vidlet.com. Right away it says, you want to be participant? Take us from there. Very good point. So traditionally, these participants in these so-called surveys are considered very low-level, I would say, contributors. And what we are trying to do is almost turn that thing upside down and say these people are incredibly valuable because they're ultimately your customers. But you have to know that they are the right people. You have to know that they actually really own this product and traditionally in surveys today, people lie because they want to make a little bit of money. And what we are saying is let's find the right people and reward them accordingly. If you are, um, let's say, a doctor contributing to one of our problems or solving one of our problems, we want to reward you for that. That's very valuable. You're spending an hour of your time or 15 minutes of your time. And... Research today is not doing that, right? Everybody is considered very low value on the contributing side. So we say like these people become experts in helping you define the product experience. And you need to value that. So when it says participants and, and, it, and it invites you to uh, sign up. In fact, we now call them product experts. Because if you own an iPhone, like I do, I'm a product expert, right? I use this product every day. I probably use it more than most engineers working on the iPhone. So we have actually changed the term now to product experts. If you drive a VW, you're a product expert. So kind of changing how we see consumers because they're extremely valuable. Now, clearly you have to understand the profile of who is signing up. It doesn't say sign up for our VW study or our iPhone study. It just says, would you like to join? Well, but we will ask you those questions. And the nice thing about video is that you actually have to prove it. You have to prove that you own a luxury car if you ask you about a luxury car. And traditionally, in focus groups, they often don't know who's showing up, right? Because you don't bring your luxury car to the focus group. So we are, again, turning this upside down where we ask you in many of the questions, show us what you do with the product. Show us, confirm to us that you own the product. And you would be surprised, Moira, how many times people actually lie. Really? Like they will <laughs> tell us that they own a luxury car and then when we ask them to show it to us, it's a Ford pickup truck. Maybe that's luxury to some. I'm not judging, right? Um, but it's not what we are looking for. So video is the kind of the honesty factor almost because you see, and I could almost tell you when we interview people when they lie. I'm not sure if you can do that on radio here, right? I mean, I could tell no, you but whatever. You, but... you could teach me. <laughs> <laughs> and unless we redesign the studio, I can't get you back in here to be watching all our guests. <laughs> yeah, so you get a very good sense when you watch people um whether they're actually the right people that you're asking. Do they have the, the situation that you're actually looking for? We definitely always ask them to show us um, their environment, their home, their car. Um, whatever so is relevant. Whatever is relevant, exactly. Now, are you watching that in real time? 
Uh, no, it's asynchronous. <clears throat> but um, what we think is very important because obviously you could record anyone on video, right? But what we think is very important that if you see something meaningful in what we call cohorts. So when we interview 20 people, we often find clusters of behavior. Let's say uh, we interview people buying a speaker, a loudspeaker, and then we see that certain people like certain speakers. And based on what we see, we keep asking them more questions. So it's asynchronous, but it is continuous. Like I can keep go out to you as if I have a conversation with you, almost like the way we sit here and talk um, and you keep asking me questions based on what I've said or what you like or don't like. Um, it's very, very similar where we hear something from people and then we go back out and keep asking them. Now, is that very human intensive? No, not at all. It's actually very, very. And that's, I think, the goal that um, we try to make it very efficient. I mean, we have not invented this methodology. In um, in our days at Frog Design, we used to go to people's homes and interview them there. Um, that is very inefficient, right? Because you can go maybe to two people a day and you have to travel. Um, and so compared to in-person interviews, this is very, very efficient. Where you set up a set of questions within a minute and you push it out on the mobile phone and people normally answer within a couple of hours. Like yesterday, we had one example where a client wanted to know about a feature on a computer that people use. And they called us up and they said, hey, could you ask some people in the next two hours? And we found five people responding in two hours, giving very, very meaningful insights about how they use this feature on a computer. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Patricia Roller, the CEO of Vidlet, a digital research platform that utilizes the power of mobile video to enable meaningful business insights. Now, you're recording it in video, hence Vidlet. We're looking at video Little videos, here. yes. Little videos. What's the difference between the responses people give in video when they're you're seeing it's not audio, it's video. You're seeing their face and they're speaking versus when they say, might type a response. Um, what we often look for is the things that they don't say. Ah. i give you um, an example. Um, we did a study on women, our age group, eating healthy snacks. And they all were saying, or many of them were saying that they were eating very healthy snacks. But when we asked them to show us what snacks they were eating in the pantry, the story looked very different. Healthy to them often meant 100-calorie packages that we now see a lot in the grocery a stores. A lot of them. Right? You see them. a lot of them. But they're not healthy, not necessarily healthy. So what they were eating were... Um, the 100-calorie packages of fudge cookies. There you go. <laughs> yep. Only 100 calories, but not your healthiest 100 calories. So that's kind of what we are looking for is like what are people saying versus what we are seeing. And there's often a big discrepancy. And so if you were just to type a response, then you're filtering this through your mind about what it is and you're typing it and this is your official response and how it reads. But if you literally show people you're covered, well, then you're pretty much 
Well, you see the truth, right? You see the truth. <clears throat> what we have also seen in written responses is that people lie. So there are a lot of we, for example, have people trying to become our experts or participants through algorithms. Um, where they try to participate because they get paid a little bit of money and they try to pretend that they are different personas. Same pe people. Same people. We had one uh, participant, um, and we are pretty sure it was an algorithm coming out of India, participating 99 times or wanting to participate. And when we said, send us a video, and we can see it on like when it comes in, it's all timestamped. And when we asked to uh, see a video, we never heard from him again. So, and that's the reality today that um, a lot of these surveys are fake, fake news. Fake news. Fake news, yeah. I saw on your website um, a number of videos, but one of them was how to write a research question. So you have clients over here wanting to know something but frequently, I guess, they don't know how to frame that question. Well, um, oftentimes when we ask a question, and maybe that's the case here too, we lead the response, right? We lead a little bit what we want to hear because you already have a hypothesis of what you want to find out. So what we often do is we tell, and in traditional research, people take the question almost too serious. And I'm sure it's probably... In your business We're very too, serious right? You here. take your very business serious, serious, yeah. serious, right? <laughs> so what we are saying is don't take the whole question or set of questions so serious. Just ask something. And based on what you hear, keep asking it. Um, so traditional research, people have already laid out exactly the question they want to ask people. I'll give you an example. Um, We're doing a study right now on people buying a high-tech product over the holidays. And the client assumes that these people go to a store. And so the questions are all about how is your shopping experience? When about 50% of our respondents talked about shopping online. So why would I keep asking you that same question? I, I used to get um, surveys from airlines all the time asking me how my checking experience was at the counter. I haven't checked in at the counter in I don't know how many years. Right. Right. So don't <laughs> ask me that question. And so that's what we are trying to tell people, like with video and mobile access to people, don't take the question so serious. It's a very lighthearted conversation that you have with your customers and let them tell you what you need to know. Okay, so let's say I register and I look good to you in terms of what you're trying to study. Now, obviously, I have a smartphone. Uh, do I just turn on the video and, and start talking and email that to you? How, how does that interchange work? So first, we know that you are the right person we want to talk to. And then we set up a set of questions that are targeted just for you. What because do we of my know? profile. Because of your profile. And so traditional in research, that's called a screener. Where you screen, does Moira have a cell phone? What brand does she have? Um, how old are you? Where do you live? Because using a cell phone in San Francisco may be very different than using a cell phone in China. So all of those things come in way before you answer the question. And then we push these questions out to you just for you. 
And you could answer these questions once. We could ask you maybe to record something every day. Like, tell me every day what you ate for breakfast. Sort of a diary. A diary, exactly. And I just video myself and save it. And it automatically uploads. Once oh, so you're done. do I have an app? Is you have a... an app, yes. I oh, did... missed that part. Yes, you do have an app. So, so the first time you have to download an app to be one of our client experts, consumer experts. Um, but once you have done it, it's always there. So you pick it up, you bring the app up, and here's my breakfast, and I probably have to show it to you as a, besides describing it to Exactly, you. and we may even send you a notification at like 7 a.m. in the morning. Moira, have you forgotten showing us your breakfast? Did you eat it already? Did you eat it already? <laughs> yep. Eat it again. Well, it's funny that you should say breakfast because I remember very clearly being in a seminar, a Harvard Business Case seminar. They give them all over the, all over the world uh, about how to teach you know, Harvard business cases. It's big business for them. And I guess the one of the examples we were doing, and there had to be 40 people in the room, uh, was they said, break up into teams. And we're going to take, the problem is we're going to take a national popular children's cereal and we're going to make it, you know, go all over the world. We're going to go global. So what are the next so many steps? And then there was a big silence. And then this guy said, I grew up in Hong Kong. We only ate noodles. I have no idea how to do this case study. And so if you're, if you're saying, let's go to China. There are over a billion people in China. Let's sell our cereal there. You might not get anywhere in China. Uh, China is fascinating because I think we know that there are so many industries now, like the auto industry, that everybody knows that they will not survive if they cannot figure out China. And um, our son lives in China, and he looks at us living in Silicon Valley as we are a little bit behind. Um, so behaviors are so different in different countries. Um, one example was um, <coughs> we did a study on credit cards. And in China, people, especially young people, don't have credit cards anymore. They have Alipay. They have WeChat. Um, it's all on their phones. It's all on their phones. And um, they look at us. And then we did the same study in Germany where people would tell us that their pizza place down the street doesn't even pay credit cards. Um, so one country that's a little bit behind where merchants still resist the 2% payment they have to make and they still rely heavily on cash. And then another country where people don't use credit cards because they've already moved on. So if you want to be um, a global player today, you better understand those dynamics. Are there any ways that you might use Vidlet sort of internal to your company? Absolutely. So we do a couple of um, studies right now where um, companies have recognized that employees are key contributors to what they do. And uh, one example is where they want global, um, global company, global brand, wants to become more innovative. So one of the things they do is ask the employees what hinders them to be more innovative. And when your employees then tell you that your processes are too bureaucratic, and you are too slow, how can you expect them to go faster and be more open-minded? So those are sometimes the most fascinating interviews where a company has a very big goal 
And when you sit down and talk to the employees on a global basis again, um, it looks very different. I'm speaking with Patricia Roller, the CEO of Vidlet. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, the link between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's. We'll hear from Dr. Gerald Chun, who heads neuroscience drug discovery at Sanford Burnham Previs. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Patricia Roller, the CEO of Vidlet, a company which uses the capability of video taken on an individual smartphone to do ethnographic research, and from there, develop an understanding of products, services, and more. These smartphone-connected experts can be an everyday person or a professional in an advanced technical or medical field, or even the employees of a team, a department, or a company. After the Vidlet app is downloaded, they take videos of themselves and their experiences. Then they simply relate their own perspectives or physically unpack a new product and use it on the spot. Or even, as we've just been discussing, talk about the environment in which they work. How reluctant are employees to speak? I mean, you don't want to get in trouble at work. It's you on the video. So we definitely... um account for that where um, we often also do more anonymous surveys at the same time and when we feel that they differ too much um, where the video answers are too positive and the anonymous answers are too negative that in itself (laughs) is a sign right that's in itself (laughs) is a sign Um, but a lot of that and this goes back you asked me earlier about asking the right questions I think a very important part of that is how do I how do I invite my employees where they feel that they are contributing to the better good of the company so a lot of it is in how do we invite them what do we tell them who actually sends out that first email asking them 
to contribute. So a lot of those things we are still working out, but I think they are very, very important, and we see more and more of that. I think making employees part of your it's a culture change to become more innovative is probably the next big thing we will see. Now, I know a lot of people who can fake it on a test if they're writing something down or typing something down. They can even fake it in a still picture. You can kind of set yourself up and give an expression. But I don't know anybody who can fake it in a video. <laughs> like... And, you know, I mean, back to the employee interviews, there's always someone that tries to please you, but you see it. Video is so incredibly honest. And this is not just, you know, me saying, oh, this person is faking it. We often all look at the same content at the same time. And video is the ultimate democratizer, I think, because when you see it, you absolutely see it. You see it in their eyes. You see it in their behavior. And there's really never a wrong answer, right? If someone tries to please you, that's okay, too. Uh, but it may not be the deeper insight that you're looking for. And I think also what's apparent is emotion. I mean, we don't usually ask about emotion at another level. But in the old days, we used to say it's written all over your face or it's written in your body posture. When you're speaking, you're thinking you're giving away, you know, this is what I feel and I'm telling you about this. But you can see the person in video. We can see the person in video, and even more importantly, oftentimes they're a little bit guarded the first time around. And this is what I meant earlier when I said we continuously keep going out. What is very powerful if, if someone has given us a response and we say, like, you know what, we really liked how you helped us. And then we go back out, and the second time around, they're completely different. They're more open. And if we go out a third time and we say, like, we really like what you have done and you're really helping us shape the future of our company, it's unbelievable what you get from them. And so you almost continuously see them getting better and better and better and more honest. And more honest. So sometimes the products and the services, they actually don't like so much. Um, and that's okay, right? Um, like in that's fact, good to know. <gasps> it's good to know because as we know, 50% of products statistically still fail in the market. Um, why isn't that a good thing to know in advance? Why shouldn't I know before I go through my whole product life cycle and push a product out in the market? Well, sometimes I may have the right product, but I talk about it the wrong way. Um, we had just done a study, again, in financial services. I love financial services because money is so personal, right? It's so personal to people. And we just did a study, again, in financial services. And um, the language the company used was exactly the language that scared everyone. Oh, no. So just don't call it something else. And speaking of financial services, and we were talking about iPhones and products, I mean, you've got a very broad range of clients. You know, we're talking from GoPro to Home Depot, uh, Mercedes-Benz, Pepsi, Hewlett-Packard, you know, General, General Mills. I'm sure that they've discovered what my colleague discovered from Hong The Kong. breakfast. <laughs> the breakfast, the children's breakfast cereal in China business, and uh, Intuit. Um, which, at, which is really a service, if you will. It's not even a, there's not a product that you can put your hands on there. Philips, many, many products. There are, it, it, 
there is no kind of company that doesn't need to have strategy and to have interrelations with humans. You, you you said it. I don't know. I couldn't, can't even say it any better. I mean, every product we experience from when we wake up in the morning to going to bed at night is somehow an experience that matters to us. And that could be a car. It could be um, a breakfast cereal. It, it's really anything that we touch throughout the day. And if you think about your day and how many experiences you still have that are somewhat miserable or where you have somehow accepted that they are miserable... There's still so much we can do to improve an experience for people and customize it more, right? Also, our lives change. We get older. Um, I mean, I, I think, for example, the iPhone is the ultimate example of a company telling us because Apple, and I love Apple. I'm not, um, but Apple is the brand um, that has dictated what good customer experience is, right? That's how we read it in media, and um, that's what we we are being told. But I can tell you about probably 10 miserable experiences I have with my iPhone every day. And so this is not something, it, there's never an end game. It always changes. Um, we learn more or we get older. So product experiences change with us. And companies need to stay always on the ball. It's not like you get it right once. You always have to kind of evolve and then make it better. Well, I was reminded when I was thinking about Vidlet, the, the, uh, I was just the other day, I was picking up a half gallon of, of liquid and they had a nifty, they had decided that they were going to make the, the, the container to have these little ridges, this little indentation so you could pick it up and, you know, and pour it, it over, <laughs> you know, they didn't use my size hand, <laughs> but I could tell you that, but having a video to say, look, here I am trying to pick this thing up and this is what it's like when it's empty and this is what it's like when it's half full and this is what it's like when it's completely full. I could get pretty much control of it when it was about a quarter full. But before that, it was like I was, it, I had, I didn't have control. I wasn't happy about it. You know, and it's like as an engineer, I can tell you, you could redesign that. Mm-hmm. You didn't you didn't have to make it quite that way, or perhaps you did for other parameters I didn't understand. But unless you see it on particular people, the people who are actually using it, you actually don't know that. You don't know that. And sometimes we already accept the way things are. Like, I mean, we all know that the car industry is going through tremendous changes. And we all accept that every day we sit in a car as one person, right? Like I do. I drove here now 50 miles all by myself. And the car, my car has four or five seats. So there are also a lot of these things that we simply accept over time. Whereas if you would really ask people, what do you do in your car all day? You would probably design it very differently. One thing that occurs to me as you're doing these studies, and you could have only five people from the two hours that they immediately needed an answer, you're still talking about a lot of data. You've got these videos. You've got the content of what they're seeing. You've got what you're observing within the video. How do you put that all together for a customer? Yep, so it's still video. That's a very good point. So we are working more and more on s- to see how AI tools can help us, right? So we already have um, some tools that break down um, commonly spoken words. 
that we then cluster together. Um, so we use a lot of tools like that. Because um, you can automatically translate automatically. The, the audio. Yeah. Yeah, so we have transcriptions. Um, we have translations. Like when we do a study in China, it automatically translates. Um, and so we are working more and more on tools that make kind of this clustering. We see each video almost like a post-it note. Uh-huh. Like, so if you do brainstorming, you have all these post-it notes that you put on the wall and then you cluster on them into patterns. And so we are working more and more. How do we cluster these things automatically? Um, and we are also guiding people more to giving us short answers. Because sometimes you ask someone a question, the right answer comes in the first 20 seconds. They don't need to talk three minutes about it. Um, so we are guiding people a little bit in how to make it vidlets, not videos, right? Make them <laughs> short. Um, and then we also have tools that help us analyze the content. But it's still about watching it. It's still about seeing people. It occurs to me that we're really at the cutting edge here. This is emergent. Where you're, you're not only providing a service, a service that works, that, you know, that's, in, that's a reality now, but it is really evolving out here at the edge of how we might use this, how we might do it. I say that to my team all the time that we have barely scratched the surface, right? Um, when we started out, the challenge was still how do people upload this content around the world? Like in the Philippines where you have slow, slower Wi-Fi, right? How do people upload content? So I think we just barely accomplished that. And that's where we are really, really good in understanding how video works on a mobile phone. But in how we analyze content and how we do this at scale is still something where if you look at our product roadmap, we could go for the next three years and using AI tools in a meaningful way, right? Because AI right now is still somewhat kludgy, like it gives you the yeses and the noes, but what do they actually mean? Um, like we do a lot of word clouding out of the video content and it's almost always totally meaningless. And by word clouding, we're saying if you translated all the words and the more instances the word had, the louder, it w- the louder, the bigger it is, then you're supposed to get something out of it. But it, it's not the case. It's not always the case. You get something out of it, but... Um, especially if you can, let's say, take a word cloud and then drill on a word and go back and look at the video, then maybe you very quickly get a sense of whether it's meaningful. But word clouds are just things people said the most. It's not meaningful in itself. Um, But I think we'll get better. I think tools, AI tools, will get better over time and, um, and we can do this more at scale. And we will also get better in finding the best people to give us the answers. Um, like if I could ask you about your experience as, let's say, a professor or what you're doing here at KQED, why wouldn't I pay you a lot of money? You should. Me, right? should, right? I'm not sure you're allowed to as a journalist. I think the professor could take the money. <laughs> <laughs> so let me check with my attorney. <laughs> but you know, finding the right person that is not bringing in another agenda and is willing to share. Is willing to share and is getting paid, not not in a sense that this payment is, you know, the the most important thing. I think the most important thing is to make the world better. And that's why I like healthcare projects too, where we can talk to doctors. And 
Of course, another, you know, $500 an hour doesn't make a dent. Um, they have hardly um, any time in the day, but if they can help curing or making the lives of their patients better, I think that's very meaningful. So that's what we are still trying to get to. I always say it goes hand in hand. <laughs> hand in hand. Hand in hand. You have to do something valuable and you have to get paid cash for it no matter no matter what exactly, it is. Yeah. It has to go hand in hand. Exactly, yeah. You were with Frog Design for a long time, CEO for how many years? 25 years. Well, I, I didn't start out as CEO, but uh, I was at Frog um, for 25 years. Ended up as co-CEO with Helmut. Co yes. Yes, co-CEO. And... Uh, Obviously, you did so many different kinds of designs and design processes and design work. Now you're over here with Vinlet, and you're taking other people's questions that have have to do with products that are designed, strategies designed, services designed. Have you learned anything about design now that you're with Vinlet and, and watch the kind of information that comes in from those people? Also, while at Frog, um, I would have done Vidlet at Frog. So for me, this is the evolution of the design process because um, designers often don't change, right? We see designers as these very creative people. But when I look back at Frog, I think my biggest contribution was always breaking things when they went really well. Um, like, for example, moving from pure hardware design back in the Apple days to invite people to design software as an integrated experience was very, very difficult. So designers often have the hardest time to change. It's very f interesting, right? It's almost a little bit counterintuitive. So even at Frog, I thought designers need to embrace technology and need to embrace um, global consumers. So my goal ultimately is that the end consumer helps shape the product experience, not designers dictate the product experience. You still need someone that translates what the consumer tells you. Consumers ultimately will never be designers, right? Um, but they can give you input. They can tell you their needs and their emotions. And so I would have done this at Frog. And I honestly think design companies should do this. Um, that's truly my mission. Um, just we sold frogs, so to do it now. <laughs> have to do it on your own. <laughs> and I, I, I want to do it on my own, but I also want to work. Um, so we are actually working with frogs. So frog is a client. McKinsey is a client. Um, so I want to work with more design companies just w than with my own. And they are all helping us shape how we move this product forward. They give us, we work with other smaller agencies too, and they give us incredible input in how they use this on a global scale. Well, Patricia, it's terrific. I hope you come back and see us again and that we don't have to – I don't want you to say, well, I'll come back. Did you redesign the studio? <laughs> yes, that microphone needs a little bit of work. A little bit of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. <laughs> Thank you, Moira. My guest today is Patricia Roller, the CEO of Vidlet. More information is available at vidlet.com. That's V-I-D-L-E-T, vidlet.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Music. 
Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. We've talked about Down syndrome before, which is often diagnosed at birth or even while the pregnancy is underway. Its diagnosis is a straightforward genetic test. We've also talked about Alzheimer's, which is a progressive chronic disease, the onset for which is usually over 65 years old. And diagnosis is based on extensive cognitive testing, ruling out other possibilities. Since Down syndrome and Alzheimer's are found at opposite ends of a human life, it's not obvious that they would be linked together. Dr. Gerald Chun is a professor and senior vice president of neuroscience drug discovery at Sanford Burnham Prebys Medical Discovery Institute. It's certainly not just our work. It's, it's many uh, scientists and physicians around the world uh, that have studied both Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease. And uh, what the link is is that it was recognized many years ago that individuals with Down syndrome, which is a trisomy or a, uh, a situation where a cell has three copies instead of the normal two of chromosome 21, that these individuals, by the time they reach the age of 40, will have uh, within their brain pathology, that is, uh, if one were to take a little section through it and look at it, a pathology that looks just like Alzheimer's disease. And it was that recognition uh, that brought the two fields together because uh, of the way that this uh, brain looks uh, under a microscope. So uh, that led to a great deal of work to try to determine what precisely was going on. And it appears that there's a region on that chromosome 21 that contains a gene that's called amyloid precursor protein gene, or just APP for short. And uh, when one has three copies of that gene, whether it's in Down syndrome or in very rare cases of families that have Alzheimer's disease, uh, then you will get uh, Alzheimer's disease. So that's one of the strongest links. And in fact, it's basically considered causal if you have three copies of uh, the APP gene uh, that, that will lead to Alzheimer's disease. How recent is that discovery? Well, I'd say it's, it's actually quite old, probably back into the 70s or, or thereabouts. Uh, the findings of families with uh, extra copies is, is more recent, uh, related to some of the genome sequencing that went on probably in the last 10 years or so. But it's not exclusively that. That's right. And it, it's not. And, and I should add that uh, in the case of Down syndrome, it's something that happens from the, uh, from the embryo. Uh, in the case of the familial cases uh, of, of uh, Alzheimer's disease, there you have these extra copies showing up in the germline that is basically uh, at, at the point of conception. Uh, but if you actually look at the totality of Down syndrome in the familial uh, cases, they represent a very small proportion of the total burden of Alzheimer's disease. So the vast majority of Alzheimer's disease patients do not have these at least not in this manner, um, as the mechanism or as the, the explanation for getting Alzheimer's disease. And we refer to those cases as sporadic. Those individuals have disease. We don't really understand where it comes from. Uh, but, but there's a lot of work going on to, to try to understand that. And uh, we think we have some clues. Now, Dr. Chen, 
the ability to study the brain has changed so dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years. What kinds of things precisely are you able to look at and include in your research? Yeah, one one of the uh, really exciting uh, new venues that, that has opened up relates to looking at single cells or single neurons of the brain at the level of their RNA. That's uh, what, when it's uh, uh, it'll get transcribed and be translated into proteins, as DNA, well as the DNA, RNA, that's proteins. it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> um, and, and so we can look at uh, really both now at the level of single cells, and the resolution uh, is getting better and better. And what that will allow us to do is to identify changes that uh, exist within the brain that we had uh, really almost no inkling of, uh, say, just twenty years ago. And the the net effect of these types of analyses is it now appears that our brains are actually a complex mosaic of cells with uh, differing genomic and transcriptomic, or that is DNA and RNA information within them. And it's that complex mosaic that probably underlies much of uh, the way our brains work normally and uh, how this mosaic can be altered in, in disease like Alzheimer's disease. Well, I'm afraid I have sort of a, a novice picture of my brain that says all the cells in there are just my brain cells. But are you telling me that my brain cells throughout my brain are, can be quite different? Uh, yes, indeed. And it's a surprising uh, piece of information for, for, for many, many folks that, in fact, your brain is composed of certainly neurons and probably other cells, such as the glia as well, that can differ at the level of their DNA and their uh, RNA. So this mosaicism is something that is uh, pervasive and it's robust, and it's, it's really a fact of how our brain is actually uh, organized. Well, when we say that that this cell may have this DNA and the next one may have a slightly different DNA or an extremely different DNA. That's oh, right. we're, we're still examining all of this. It means they each have different programming capabilities as to what they do. DNA really basically means what kind of program and then the RNA is translated into certain proteins. You've got a very, very complex system up there, far more complex than I think we ever suspected. Uh, indeed, it, it is complex, and yet if we look across the uh, you know, diversity of human activity, that itself is incredibly complex. And so here is, uh, say, one of the substrates for that complexity that we can actually point to and identify. And you're absolutely right. It's this information storage that appears to be altered, and uh, it's been altered in ways that we're just beginning to understand and that that can have very interesting, I think, uh, endpoints, whether it's how you function as, say, a fantastic engineer or how you function as an even athlete or a musician or how you might be susceptible to a variety of brain disorders or diseases. Now, let's bring this back to your study of the Down syndrome and the Alzheimer's. When we look at Alzheimer's, we're looking at a disease of the entire brain or, or much of the brain as opposed to just a problem with this cell or that cell. Is that, would that be an accurate statement? Uh, yes, it, 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 it has uh, more of a global effect, certainly, but uh, there are some commonalities that, that seem to affect specific populations, such as, uh, say, neurons of certain parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is, is one involved in cognition, the hippocampus, which is involved with memory, 
And uh, so there does seem to be some bias for certain regions of, of the brain. Uh, but um, yes, you, the net effect and what we see, of course, in our, our patients is that you have these uh, deficits in, in cognition, in memory that are characteristic of the, the clinical presentation of the disease. I have to say that one of my professors in graduate school, who I greatly admired, would say, whenever I'm discovering new things, everything gets bigger and bigger and my mind gets bigger and bigger. And I think, oh, my goodness, I'll never figure it out. And all of a sudden, we start to understand it. We, I sort of sense that we're at this place where everything, all this information is getting more and more and more, but we, don't, we can't quite put it all together yet. Well, I, I, I think we're, we're reaching, at least optimistically speaking, we're reaching an inflection point of sorts where this expansion can now be seen through a different lens, and that lens is this mosaic organization. Up to the point of mosaicism, as it's called, you know, forming this mosaic, uh, the assumption was that every single cell in your brain and, and indeed your body was the same at the level of its DNA. And once we accept that, in fact, it can be different, uh, then we can start looking more closely at uh, what may be different. And this has also implications for things like diagnoses as well. Uh, many, many studies uh, that are being conducted are looking at, uh, say, Alzheimer's disease patients' cells that are from other than brain, say, a cheek swab or some of your blood. But in fact, maybe where we really need to be looking is, is in the brain itself. And that, in fact, is how the disease was first defined, the characteristic plaques or senile plaques, A-beta plaques, as well as the so-called neurofibrillary tangles. All of that is within the brain. And so I think that is where we should be looking. Well, Dr. Chun, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Gerald Chun is a professor and senior vice president of neuroscience drug discovery at Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute. More information is available at sbpdiscovery.org. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.